hello fellow readers and welcome back to ravenclaw readers. this week we're looking at chapter seven the sorting hat along with the story of the crowning of king arthur from sir thomas malory's compilation of arthurian tales in his collection l'amour d'arthur for those of you who do not speak impeccable french as i do uh, that just means the death of arthur first published in 1485 this text is now typically divided into eight books that give accounts of the many legends of arthur king of britain and his noble knights of the round table so before we get into that text let's just hear a summary of chapter seven uh, that ella will now deliver to us the new first years are greeted in the great hall by professor mcgonagall who explains to them the importance of the sorting ceremony the sorting hat proudly sings its annual song outlining the attributes of each house to its enthusiastic student audience one by one each first year is called forward to be sorted Hermione, Neville, Ron and Harry, whose name causes much excitement, are sorted into Gryffindor, while Malfoy becomes a Slytherin. When the sorting is over, Dumbledore gives an incredibly short and rather absurd speech, and then the welcome banquet begins. When it's time to turn in for the night, Percy takes the new students to the Gryffindor common room, and the chapter ends with Harry dreaming a very strange dream about Quirrell, Snape and a flash of green light. Before we dive into analysing these two texts side by side, I will give a summary of what happens in The Crowning of Arthur and then talk a bit about why I think these two texts work alongside each other. Be warned, my summary for this week is actually pretty lengthy, so um, just bear with me. King Uther Pendragon, ruler of Britain, has been at war with the Duke of Tintagel in Cornwall for many years. Finally, he calls for a truce and invites the Duke and his beautiful wife, Lady Igraine, to a feast at the King's court. Whilst there, King Uther attempts to woo Igraine, who rebukes his advances. She recounts the events to her husband, the Duke, and the two leave the feast at once. King Uther falls into a deep despair over Igraine's rejection and is advised to seek the counsel of Merlin the Prophet. Merlin tells King Uther he will help him win Igraine's heart, but Merlin also states, Sire, I know that you are in love with Igraine. Will you swear as an anointed king to give into my care the child that she bears you, if I make her yours? The king promises to do so, and that night he, quote, appears before Igraine at Tintagel in the likeness of her husband, the duke. That night, Igraine and the king, in the guise of Tintagel, conceive a child, but Igraine soon learns that her husband had died earlier that night, three hours before he appeared to her. Obviously, this information troubles her but she tells no one. King Uther gets his wish and marries Igraine. She tells him of the strange circumstances the night her previous husband, the Duke, died. King Uther reveals all of what conspired that night. Igraine is relieved and delighted that her child will be the rightful offspring of the king, and later gives birth to a baby boy. As promised, King Uther gives the child, Arthur, into the care of Merlin. Merlin tells the king, quote, your child is destined for glory, and I want him brought to me for his baptism. I shall then give him into the care of foster parents who can be trusted not to reveal his identity before the proper time. And so the baby Arthur is raised by the Honourable Sir Ector and his wife. Two years later, King Uther dies, and the kingdom is plunged into war and bloodshed. After many years of fighting, the Archbishop of Canterbury, on the advice of Merlin, holds a service at London's greatest church, St. Paul's. There, the crowds are, quote, confronted by a marble block onto which has been thrust a beautiful sword. The anvil had been inscribed with letters of gold. Whoso pulleth out this sword of the stone and anvil is rightful king born of all Britain. That's 
my middle English. <laughs> a great tournament was held and many men of noble blood attempt to pull the sword from the stone and claim the title of rightful king, but none succeed. Until one day, Arthur and Sir Ector, along with his own son, Sir Kay, attend the tournament. Upon arriving home, Sir Kay realises his sword is missing from its sheath and begs Arthur to return to London to find it. Unable to retrieve Sir Kay's sword, Arthur enters the unguarded St. Paul's and pulls the sword from the stone. Sir Ector and Sir Kay recognise the sword and ride with Arthur back to London. Arthur places the sword into the stone and proves once more able to extract it. Sir Ector and Sir Kay then obligingly kneel before him and Sir Ector proclaims Arthur to be, quote, rightful king of Britain. Arthur performs the act again in front of the large tournament, but many noblemen are sceptical, not knowing Arthur's parentage, claiming that a person of ignoble blood could not possibly be king. After many more months of fighting, another tournament is held. Arthur remains the only person to pull the sword from the stone, and the commoners cry out that Arthur is the one true king. The nobles know the commoners are right, and finally Arthur's coronation is held, quote, when Arthur swore to rule justly, and the nobles swore him their allegiance. So why the secondary text was chosen? I chose the crowning of King Arthur to study alongside this chapter because it is such a well-known tale of the rightful king returning to bring peace to his country. From his birth, Arthur has been destined for greatness, but like Harry, his past has been kept secret from him. I wanted to consider the idea of fate as applied to the act of ritual. Just like the tournament in London and Arthur's coronation, the sorting ceremony at Hogwarts is both a spectacle and a rite of passage. I also wanted to think about the role of destiny in the house system of the school. Does your house determine what kind of person you will become? And if your house is your family, as McGonagall tells us, how does it help develop the values and morals of the students within Hogwarts? I think it's really interesting if we consider it in the context of destiny. And I know we've had a lot of issues with the word destiny yeah. applied to Harry and how it's a, a problematic concept. Because I remember um, in the week where uh, Harry went to Diagon Alley and he gets the brother wand of Voldemort, that made us raise the question of, is Harry in some way destined to be Voldemort's equal in in the way that is prophesied? Um, I don't know. <laughs> Are we supposed to take that as an in-world prophecy or is it more an outward narrative, just a narrative device? Well, to answer that, perhaps we should turn to uh, to King Arthur mm. and ask why, what is Merlin's motive in, um, in bringing him up in... In secrecy. In secrecy and not knowing that he is the prince. One thing that I've thought about this... Um, is that in some way it removes the burden of Arthur's destiny from him. Mm. Um, if we think about Harry as having a destiny to fight Voldemort, he's made aware of this quite early on, and it is a huge burden for him to have to live with. And the fact that Arthur knows nothing about his true birth, his true parentage, or the fact that he is destined to be like the one true king of Britain, um, I think it means that he has an easier life, I think. Does it make him more humble in a way? Is he less pr proud? So in a way, is Merlin's um, motivation similar to what Dumbledore said in the first chapter of not wanting to bring Harry up as a pampered prince? And I think those are the words that he used specifically. Yeah, I think I think that's um, it's good that you bring that up. Um, I suppose Arthur doesn't grow up as a pampered prince, but instead he um, he. He becomes a rightful king through a, a kind of rite of passage. Mm. 
which we can sort of see the sorting hat is also being a kind of uh, rite of passage into into a different world perhaps arthur has to overcome adversity in order to become the king he's not because his past is hidden he has to prove to these men that he is worthy of of being the king and it's the it's the commoners who are the ones who eventually convince the nobles that Arthur is the true king and the nobles it says you know the nobles know it in their heart to be true but they I guess let their pride and their loyalties to different dukedoms and whatnot get in the way so again that speaks to that idea of being humble because the noblemen have to humble themselves to the commoners and they have to humble themselves in front of Arthur and that's in a way a very big like learning curve for Arthur I think what distinguishes Harry and Arthur is that Harry has been touched by darkness. Mm. The Sorting Hat acknowledges this ambition, this uh, proof, you know, this desire to prove himself, which Arthur does not seem to have. No. Um, Arthur doesn't even realise that he's fulfilling the prophecy. No. Because it says when no, you know, when Uther died and there was this uh, power vacuum left, all the nobles were desperately trying to pull the sword out the stone and prove themselves worthy. And Arthur, when it came to pulling the sword out the stone, he didn't even read the inscription, which said the one who can do this is the one true king. He I just know. pulled it out, didn't realise that nobody else could do this. Um, yeah, it was so that he could get the sword for his, his brother, brother yeah. so that his brother may compete to be king. Yeah, it reminded me a bit of Harry and the snake, you know, doing this very miraculous thing that um, is actually quite uncommon for wizards. We even find out that, you know, parcel tongue is a very rare gift, if you want to call it that, to have. Um, And Harry just does this completely unknowingly with the boa constrictor. So I was uh, reading up about uh, rites of passage um, and found the, the phrase was actually coined by a man named Arnold van Gennep. So we have lots of rites of passage in our in our lives, such ceremonies of birth, baptism, of which there are many um, images of baptism in 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 the Sorting Hat um, chapter. Um, marriage, even death, is a kind of rite of passage into a into another realm. But what all rites of passages all share three stages, according to to Van Gener, which is separation. Um, where one individual is separated from their previous condition, um, existence on the margin, which is a kind of suspension in limbo, and finally incorporation, which uh, participants are found in their um, new condition. Yeah, so let's go through that. So separation, I mean, how is that? That's when they get taken away from the Great Hall and just put in that little room. So they're separated from the rest of the school. And then um, existence on the margin. So that's when they're waiting to be called. And then when they're sitting there with the hat on their head and they haven't yet been told what house they're in. And then finally incorporation when the hat calls out their name and they go and they sit at their table and everybody cheers. Um, It is a very intimidating thing to ask of these new students to go up in front of the entire school and be judged essentially every eye is upon you not to mention the fact that mcgonagall has already told them how significant this ceremony is how you know it will determine their entire future career at hogwarts and possibly beyond Mm. yeah exactly so whilst waiting in the queue harry you know he he does feel out of place he worries that the sorting hat is going to be put in his head and he's going to be sent back home Mm. um is this is this the source of of Slytherin 
type qualities where the 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 um the sorting hat says that he has this ambition to prove himself to prove that he belongs where he is and does that come from this sense of separation and alienation if you think about it that way then harry's ambition is kind of coming from a negative place then but he does say not slytherin to the sorting hat he tells the sorting hat that he chooses something else well, he, this is, I think this is important because people often misremember this. He does not choose to be in any particular house. He just says he doesn't want to be in Slytherin. So, yeah, the fact that the sorting hat said that Harry would do well in Slytherin, you know, was the source of a lot of debate um, amongst fans, but also for Harry himself. It's a source of great anxiety for him. Um, and I, I've never really understood exactly the significance of this but i think i've managed to dig into it a bit this week um i was just wondering what you guys do you guys have any opinions of it before i launch into my little tirade about it yeah i think he displays qualities from all the houses yes so i think he could have found a way in all of them but i don't think he is the best fit for slytherin I would agree with that. Um, I think this goes back to what Paul said last week about the very fact that Harry turns down this handshake by Draco Malfoy already proves that he shouldn't be in Slytherin. Because when you look at um, what the Sorting Hat says about Slytherin uh, in his little song, um, the, the Sorting Hat says, or perhaps in Slytherin, you'll make your real friends, those cunning folk use any means to achieve their ends. And Harry has proven that he's not going to do that. I think it's really um, quite noteworthy that the Sorting Hat uses the words friends in relation to Slytherin. And Harry has already proven he doesn't want to be friends with one of the most important people in Slytherin, and that's Draco Malfoy. But surely it should tempt him because that's what he wants. He wants friends. That's That was what he was... Uh, lacked back in the real world. But he says when he's observing all the students in the Great Hall that from what he's seen of the Slytherin students, they look like an unpleasant bunch, I think is how he actually describes yeah. them. And there might be a bit of bias on his part, which, you know, he does admit. Um, but it, it, there is cl- there is clearly something about Slytherin that, that does not appeal to Harry. And I would basically say that the very fact that Harry doesn't want to be put in Slytherin makes it clear that he doesn't belong in Slytherin because Slytherin is a place of ambition and it's a place of resourcefulness and you're going to use your friends I mean not that people in Slytherin don't have real friends I, of course I, I think they do but um you know they know it's, it's like think about Slughorn he knows and I, I, I love Slughorn but he knows the people to pick in order to get him into a good place in society and Harry has already rejected that because if he were to if he wanted to move up in society, he should be friends with Draco Malfoy and not Ron Weasley. What we've touched upon there is the idea of choice mm. and how choice really governs this chapter. It was Harry's choice not to be put in Slytherin that the Sorting Hat took into account when it mm-hmm. put him in Gryffindor. Um, and I think it's really interesting if we consider Arthur from the... Does Arthur have any choice at all? in his destiny in the same way that Harry seems to have done here already determining it because Arthur we see you know Arthur wouldn't even have been conceived if it hadn't been for 
Uther's lust and Merlin pulling the strings to make that happen. Mm -hmm. And then his choice is also taken away from him when he's um, put with foster parents, which was a decision made by Merlin. And then um, when he pulls the sword from the stone, that proves to everybody else that he is the one true king, but it's not anything he sought for himself. Yeah. So it seems that where Harry has the choice, Arthur's entire story is driven by the fact that he has no choice. Things just happen to him and he has to accept that. You see, I think that's a very good point. And it makes me wonder, um, because Harry does, you know, he does make the, the choice not to go into Slytherin. Is he sacrificing some quality that in the sorting hat, do, on that altar, in that ceremony, <laughs> are you putting something up for sacrifice? Does, for instance, Hermione sacrifice her love of knowledge and, and, and learning and wit for friendship? You know, it's, you know, the three people she seems to meet on the train all go to Gryffindor, mm. as does she. Yes, I really want to come back to that point, but briefly say that I think Ella's completely right when she reads Arthur's life being forces beyond his control, and Harry's is too, up until this point. This is pretty much the first major choice mm. that Harry gets to make. And it is different from Arthur doesn't really get the choice to be king, he has to. Um, but Harry chooses not to be in Slytherin. And I think that... Well, he made that choice on the train. I think he made that choice when he met Draco Malfoy in the yeah. rope shop. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but he, he finds out that Voldemort is in Slytherin and he finds out that Slytherin are tied up with the dark arts and he doesn't want to have anything to do with that because that's the man who put all this in motion and made him... You know, Voldemort is the person who took Harry's choices away. And now Harry's going to say, I'm not going to be a part of that. Return to the, uh, this idea of rite of passage and joining the sort of community. Mm -hmm. In a community, it's a, it's, it's a collective we of dwelling. So even the, all the, the houses have their own quarters, for instance. But it's, it's, it's more than just um, a, a tower and a castle. But imposed, imposed upon and discovered in the feeling of community is the experience of pollution, separation, or fall the individual sense that in the collective they are out of place um and there's this idea of to reclaiming that place one must atone and you do that through sacrifice mm -hmm. so that's what i when, when i was talking about the sorting hat asking for almost a sacrifice it is it's almost like an atonement to to re-enter the the community and that thing which you have sacrificed becomes through the ceremony it becomes sacred. It's it's a sort of instilled in your mind. So you're talking about what people sacrifice so that they can get into Gryffindor. For example, let's just take Gryffindor because that's where most of the main characters are. So Hermione has to sacrifice a part of her personality that is um, associated with book learning, which is more um, common to you know someone in Ravenclaw. But do people who also get into Gryffindor also have to sacrifice? I don't know if they have to sacrifice, like, because Neville has to sacrifice something that he doesn't want to, to get into Gryffindor, because as we will learn, Neville feels very out of place in Gryffindor. Actually, Harry is very at home in Gryffindor. Harry, I think, has always, um, you, you know, the, the Gryffindor is, even in fourth year, when everyone else turns against him, the Gryffindors support him. Um, and 
it's when you know naturally Harry is at home there, and once or twice his his house does does turn against him, and it's very painful. But I feel like for Neville, Neville is the one who seems a lot quite out of place. Um, so does he have to sacrifice something to to be in Gryffindor? I've thought it would always be really interesting if we could have seen what the others were thinking when mm. the hat was on their head because we only see it from Harry's perspective yeah. but it actually says you know sometimes the hat is barely placed on someone's head before it determines which house they're in and then you get someone like Seamus where it deli- where the hat is deliberating for about a minute mm. so you wonder what is the conversation that's happening there how how is the hat determining that Seamus is a good fit for Gryffindor and not another house I mean I would love to hear that but I think it's important that we don't because um, interestingly enough, in the crowning of uh, Arthur, uh, Merlin pleads to 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 the king. He says, "You you are the anointed king, and by that I want your word." And then, anointed, of course, um, it means divined by by God, and that reminded me of the ritual of anointing the king or queen of Britain. And if anyone has watched The Crown, which they completely should because it's amazing, um, or if they know a bit about history, you will know that the anointing part of the ceremony where the Archbishop of Canterbury puts the oil on on the king or the queen's head to make them the monarch is so sacred that it can't be shown. So when Queen Elizabeth had her coronation, um, everything was televised, which was huge for the time in the 50s except for that one moment because it is so sacred and you know it's it's explained to us in, in the crown in a very very beautiful way that that is the it's it's this moment of transformation and and transcendence when an individual becomes greater than that one person so that she now has to embody what it means to be the the queen and the crown as something greater than just Elizabeth Mountbatten or Elizabeth Windsor and I think that there is something in that secrecy that that thing that has to be kept hidden and in a way that's why we don't know what the hat says to the other students because it is private and it is secret and there is something transcendent in that decision as to what house you should be put in that is intentionally left hidden from the reader and from the other students. I've never thought of it like that, but I think that's a really good interpretation. I think Harry is anointed in another sense as well, which is the scar, which, Mm. you know, he has his, you know, uh, and it's hidden even from himself by a a green flashing light. You know, when I was reading the the King Arthur, actually, I did see a parallel between our current queen, Queen Queen Elizabeth, where was she didn't, what age was she when she, the crown was thrust upon her? Oh, I guess, um, I don't know exactly how old she was, but she was, she wasn't born thinking she would be the queen because her father was the brother of, of the current, of the king. Um, and then that, that king, um, abdicated. So Elizabeth's father had to step in and become the king. So then once that happened, Elizabeth and now, you know, her, her descendants, are going to be the kings and queens. Th- we do respect that, don't we? The, like that the, this idea of art, the, the crown being thrust upon Arthur, because it's a situation that is grounded in everyday life. We could imagine a great responsibility being thrust upon us in a way that we cannot imagine being born into a onto a throne. It is fighting a troll. It's not putting a hat on. It's you know it is much more of an ordeal, and to come through that 
um, and remain partially yourself, but to, as you say, sort of transcend behind the uh, the the curtain um, is something that, you know, perhaps is one of the reasons why we have such a deep love and respect for the current queen, maybe. A lot of people hate the king who abdicated, um, uh, the, the Duke of Windsor, as he is known, um, once he is no longer king. And they basically turn to him and, and, and say, you killed your brother and you deserve, you did a great disservice, not just to the country, but to your family. And so Elizabeth has to take on the crown as an act of responsibility, but it's also seen as this something that has been tainted. Her life has been forever tainted by the actions of this man not to step up to his responsibility. So in a way, Harry's life could have been seen as been tainted by what Voldemort has done to him. But yet Harry, as as the Queen did, decides to step into this role and think, I I am not going to let the world down. I didn't choose this destiny, but it is my responsibility to live through it. And then that comes to the point of what we were talking about, about what what you value. Uh, This, I'm pretty sure this sprung up as a fan theory, but I think it works so well that I am willing to actually take it as as true that this is what's happening is that the sorting hat doesn't read your attributes necessarily but what you value and i think that that is uh, that makes so much more sense when you think about characters who you would say hang on shouldn't that person be in another house so i mean that obvious one is peter Pettigrew, where people say how did he end up in gryffindor but he values those traits of bravery and courage so he admires the people that he sees those traits in, like James and Sirius and Lupin. Um, but he can't actually be that that person. This was kind of what we talked about last week, wasn't it? I think in, it's in Chamber of Secrets. Harry tells Dumbledore that he, you know, the, the sorting hat, the sorting hat said he would do, do well in Slytherin and that's upset him. And Dumbledore says it's the choices that, that make us who we are. It's the choices that define us. And I'm wondering if that's like the tragedy of Peter Pettigrew is that he had the choice to be brave and to stand up and to, to, to enact those values that he cares for and he chose not to. And he chose the, the coward's way out. Whereas someone like Hermione, she values bravery because she's in this new school and yes, she loves learning and that's a very important aspect to her. And yeah, um, I think she says that the hat did consider Ravenclaw for her, but at the end of the day, she values bravery and she values those virtues more than, than, than book learning. And that's why she's in Gryffindor. I think it might be interesting to, to, to think about the, uh, the trial of Gryffindor Tower the poltergeist oh peeves peeves <laughs> peeves is a is a menace you won't remember Where... peeves because he was not in the films to many people's chagrin he yeah. was, wait he wasn't in any of them no so percy he claimed um he claims that the only person who can uh control Pe- uh, yeah, peeves mm-hmm. is um the bloody baron which mm-hmm. is the ghost of of uh of slytherin but in conjuring up this image of the bloody baron uh, percy accomplishes just that he does peeves does what percy wants him to do um and i think you know he could claim that he himself um did this but that would be a slytherin sort of way of of thinking about it perhaps maybe one of the 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 differences between gryffindor and slytherin is that um slytherin focuses on ends on reaching that ambition 
whilst uh, Grif- uh, Gryffindor is all about um, the means to, to achieve these things, perhaps Harry would be tempted to join Slytherin to get the power to defeat Voldemort. But he wouldn't succeed if he did that. But by because he, he can articulate his end, but he, he doesn't have um, the means to do so, which is the bravery and the courage uh, of Gryffindor. Yes. Um, so first of all, fascinating that you bring up Percy as embodying Gryffindor car- uh, traits because he's another character that people often say, oh, he should have been in Slytherin. But I disagree. And I think Paul, again, without knowing it, has put his finger on why Percy should be in Gryffindor. Because if he were in, you know, clearly he does think of himself, he's like, don't even listen to us prefects. And, you know, he's he's um very proud of his prefect badge, but he doesn't take the credit. I just thought of something. Yeah, go on. Which is back to Arthur. So like what you were saying earlier, Ella, about um Arthur not having this ambition to become the king, it's, it's his end isn't articulated. But what Merlin make sure that he learns is the means to becoming a good king. I'm just looking through my notes here, and I've, I've made um, a note about the uh, Hogwarts theme song, the Hogwarts song, oh, theme yeah? song, which is, <laughs> which is the words are the same for everybody, but you can choose the tune, which is quite interesting, I think, because it's in this ceremony of the first years, but for everyone, it's, it's a moment of... Um, you know, despite them going to a school and having to abide by all these rules, it is a moment of self-determination. So you learn about those, the Weasley brothers sing the funeral march just to sort of annoy everyone. It tells you something about them. And I think it's um, perhaps in, in, a, in a chapter of, 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 you know, such great images and, and various things, it's perhaps overlooked. And, and I, I was, I was um, taken by what Dumbledore says about music, which is a magic... Mm more important than or greater than anything that we can do even even his speech Dumbledore. Dumbledore's speech it's I, I presume you're supposed to think is this magic or is this gibberish and in that in that uh in that uh his his motives are unclear and I suppose you sort of learn something about Dumbledore you draw it by again by it being gibberish and incomprehensible and and almost silly your attention is drawn not to what he says but he who says it. Yes, that idea, again, we come back to the idea of choice and self-determination, as as you said. And I was wondering, as McGonagall has talked about, the house you're sorted into will become your family. In what, I'm kind of rolling a lot of themes into, into one here, because then in what way does your house shape your destiny? Are, are, are you able to be self-determining whilst in a particular house or does the fact that you're sorted into a house mean that you are destined for certain things like okay let's for example I feel a little bit more vindicated being able to mention him this week because we actually see him for the first time but Snape was sorted into Slytherin Mm -hmm. and if he had been sorted into pretty much any other house would his destiny have been different is the fact that he was in this house that supported the dark arts and nurtured that side of him that he was really interested in 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 the dark arts is that why he ended up where he is and and why you know the rift between him and lily happened and 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 all that i don't know well i think you know in the confines of these traditions and institutions is when we can really um become ourselves right you know um it's not chaos the, so mm. the, the Hogwarts, everyone is united 
in 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 the words but it's how those words are expressed um in which uh they they make themselves unique what do you think do you think that it's a bad idea to group a bunch of 11 year olds based on values <laughs> or even personalities in a way did you have similar things in your school no not at all but yes we had different classes but it it is different because you are you put a hat on someone's head and it like tells you what you value okay. that's different from just being randomly sorted into class a b c or whatever so in my secondary school we it was just a um a regular school it wasn't a private or boarding school we were separated into different classes but it wasn't random it was to um ability mm-hmm. oh like a yeah streaming a, a streaming yeah so it did end up telling something about you we had mm-hmm. connacht was the head one it's because you're all named after a county in ireland right connacht desmond except Lens- for desmond connacht desmond leinster monster ulster i think but to get into connacht basically was like they were academically the best desmond was uh was the most bloated class and then i think beyond that you're you, you, you know there was this idea that you weren't worth your salt almost mm-hmm. and for the j- junior cycle i was in desmond and i was happy in desmond and i am terrible at irish so i did a, a lower level irish for the junior cert which disqualified me for desmond and so i went into leinster and it was a huge, like, as I, I would have been 15, mm. 16. And it was this huge shock to my pride. I was like, oh, my. And I tried my darndest to get back into Desmond. People moved down from Desmond into uh, into Leinster. And then I was talking to the head of Desmond trying to get in. And, and it was only then that I really, uh, like, really uh, distinguished myself academically. Which I think is an interesting attribute of a house system in schools. Yeah. And um, I felt like I had to prove yeah, myself. Yeah, exactly. In the sense that it not only ties you with kind of greater familial bonds to people who are in your own house or class. I hated everyone in Lancaster. Fair enough, fair enough. <laughs> All my um, friends were in Desmond. Yeah, but Paul, this is why you do belong in Ravenclaw and the Pottermore quiz was right. No. So yeah, like ties within your own house, but also um, a drive to succeed, not just for yourself, but for your house and for your school. So we see mm-hmm. that through something like the Interhouse Championships um, and the hourglasses where the points fill up and you can visibly see how each house is doing in competition with each other. So it's kind of a drive for you to achieve personally so that your house can succeed and have glory. So I think the house system is a way of establishing close bonds and driving success in Harry Potter how that would translate into the muggle world. I don't know. I mean, we've seen that. It's not necessarily your direct experience, Paul. But um, <laughs> I think that's probably... I think that's why you see the house system being quite common in boarding schools, mm, yes. where you're away from your normal life and you're kind of forced into proximity with people you don't know. And it's very important that you establish these bonds so that you can get somewhere at this at this school, especially at you know, a tender age of 11. Because you'd outlined... Uh, choice, fate, and ritual. Mm. I sort of tried to read this chapter through all three of those. And one thing that I thought about in terms of ritual was that the the Hogwarts opening ceremony, as such, at the start of each year, is completely governed by ritual, and yet it doesn't seem to be much of a show. There's a lot of possibility there for it to be, you know, a huge yeah. ostentation in the That's way true. that many rituals are. Mm-hmm. But this one really isn't. I mean. 
it merely involves, you know, students being called up one by one. They sit on a stool, the hat is put on their head. It determines which house they are and that's it. And even the hat itself is described as being, uh, quote, patched, frayed and extremely dirty. So it feels like tradition is what's important here, not showiness. Yeah. And I feel like we see that in uh, Le Morte d'Arthur as well, uh, in the sense that pulling the sword from the stone has you know, the potential to be a huge spectacle too. He could have had a huge crowd and made a big deal of it, but Arthur just pulls it out. No one's <laughs> around, doesn't even realise he's doing it. So there really is no aspect of showiness to this ritual at all. Yes, I agree. And at the same time it is very hard work for those going through it. Um, And I think that that is important. I I think that you can only have success with with this ritual. Um, And when when I say hard work, I suppose I just mean mentally, like Harry is freaking out, as I'm sure all the other kids were as well, because weirdly enough, none of the students, not even Ron, who has lots of siblings, or Neville, who should know, or Malfoy, they don't know what's waiting for them. So again, is there is there a tradition in keeping that secret? Again, we've come back to this idea that we were talking about with um, Ollivander, um, magic and secrecy, and how those two things very often go hand in hand. So I think that, yeah, the, the importance of the ritual being emotionally and mentally hard work for the students who have to go through it, but just a fun little simple ceremony for those the, the students that are sitting at the, those tables and just welcoming with open arms the new members of their community. And I think that that's actually quite a sweet thing that, that we see. Um, it doesn't have to be showy. Yeah, I mean, because we see Ron was worried that, what was he, he'd have to fight a troll or yeah. something yeah. that Fred and George had told and him. Poor Hermione, just coming through all the spells that she knows. And yeah, Harry, just going, Harry, oh my God. Harry worried that he's going to fail because he doesn't know any magic yet. Yeah. You know, it could have been a huge ordeal, yeah. but it turns out, you know, it, it, it wasn't. It was nerve wracking, but it wasn't an ordeal. It wasn't a cloister of trials. Right? <laughs> no. But I think I think what you're saying was, was, was quite interesting and um, it reminded me of um, the ceiling of Hogwarts. Oh, yeah. And it reminded me of this, uh, was it the 18th century sort of fascination with Gothic ruins? Mm-hmm. And, it, you know, it's through the, the, this image of, 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 of a ruin that we glance the pre-enlightenment world of superstition and tradition. So the, 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 this room is, is, is made to look almost like a ruin without a ceiling. Um, but, of course, what we learn in this book is, is that this... The, the world suggested to us by these ruins of castles and things are actually is, is real. You know, it, it, it's a, a real world of wizards and witches in which superstition is not a folly to be triumphed by reason, but is actually something which exists on the outskirts of, of the muggle world. And of course, the first kind of magical entity we see, one of the things that introduces the students to, to Hogwarts are the ghosts. So in this world, the ghosts of history are, are real yeah. and they can greet you in this place. So in, in this instance, we have, yeah, the ghosts are real. There is no, there is no reason or rash, rationality. It, uh, it sort of, it exists between instinct and, and reason, to use the Hayek phrase. I also think while we're sort of talking somewhat about gothic tropes um yeah, i also yeah. think there's an, there's an element um of the sublime i think as well in this particularly in how yeah. the the enchanted ceiling um 
sort of reflects the sky outside as well and mm-hmm. so it's kind of an appreciation like a, a sublime awe of the natural world as well just sort of you know lost in the sky yeah it's a very romantic uh welcoming in of the outside forces of nature and and showing that that beauty but the chaos of the outside is alive in hogwarts and that is what the children do experience Thank you so much for listening. Next week, we will be looking at Chapter 8, The Potions Master, and we will be reading that alongside William Shakespeare's The Tempest. We will be looking specifically at Prospero's speech from Act 5, Scene 1, and that's line 20 to 87. If you want to see more about the podcast, please check out our website at ravenclawreaders.com or follow us on Instagram where we're just ravenclawreaders. Thank you so much. Bye-bye.